Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. And today I'm speaking with Mario T. Garcia, author of The Chicano Generation, Testimonials of the Movement, published by the University of California Press in 2015. Dr. Garcia is a professor of Chicano Studies and History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where his research and teaching focus on U.S.-Mexico migration and Chicano and Latino community formation, identity, and politics. Professor Garcia has a distinguished and prolific list of publications, including the highly influential Mexican-Americans, Leadership, Ideology, and Identity, uh, as well as Memories of Chicano History, the Life and Narrative of Bert Corona, and more recently, Blowout, Sal Castro, and the Struggle for Educational Justice, and the Latino Generation, Voices of the New America. Dr. Garcia has been honored with a number of awards, fellowships, and distinctions for his scholarship, including the South, uh, two times recipient of the Southwest Book Award for his publications, Desert Immigrants, The Mexicans of El Paso, and the previously mentioned Mexican Americans. Hello, Mario, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Thank you, David, so much. Thank you for having me on the program. I look forward to our discussion. Me too. Thank you. And uh, I was wondering, will you begin our discussion today by telling us a little bit about your personal background and your academic and professional trajectory? Well, I was uh, born in El Paso, Texas, uh, and uh, grew up there. Uh, went to, uh, my father was an immigrant from Mexico. He was uh, ran a used furniture store in South El Paso for many years. My mother was a U.S.-born Mexican-American, had a high school education. And we were raised not in the hardcore audio of South El Paso, but in transitional neighborhoods literally north of the tracks. And my mother insisted that we go to Catholic schools, so I went to elementary Catholic schools and uh, Catholic boys' school in El Paso. And uh, I had wanted to go to a Catholic college, but didn't have the funding for it, so I stayed locally and went to what is now the University of Texas, El Paso, where I got my BA and MA in uh, history. And uh, then after about a year, uh, I came to California. I was actually recruited uh, to as a lecturer in history at San Jose State University in the late 60s. And then from there, I matriculated down to UC San Diego, where I did my PhD mm-hmm. in the next five years, and then was recruited here to UC Santa Barbara. In between, I taught three years at Yale, and uh, but I've been in 
uh, UC Santa Barbara for, for many years. And uh, when I was a graduate student, I was already affected by the Chicano movement, so I wanted to do a dissertation on Chicano history and eventually focused on the history of early Mexican immigrants in El Paso in the late 19th, early 20th century, the first big wave of mass immigration, which what I refer to now as the immigrant generation in Chicano history, mm-hmm. and focused on my own hometown of El Paso, which I didn't know a lot about other than what I heard through family lore. Mm-hmm. And I discovered, of course, that it was a the major uh, entryway at that time for uh, most Mexican immigrants because right. they were transferred from central Mexico and northern Mexico by the uh, Mexican Central Railroad. So I did a dissertation, revised it, that became my first book, which you mentioned, Desert Immigrants. And then I've kind of gone up through the 20th century because I never felt that, unlike other historians, that I felt that I had the luxury of specializing in a particular period because we still knew so little about many different other periods in Chicano history. I felt I didn't have that luxury, so I said, well, right. I'm going to move up and I'm going to study the children of those immigrants, and that let me to study the Mexican-American generation in the 30s and the 50s, and I've done several studies there. And then I went and studied my own generation, the Chicano generation, because I was, in a sense, a product, an intellectual product of the Chicano movement, and part of the first generation of professionally trained Chicano historians into the 70s. So I mm-hmm. embarked on my study of the Chicano movement. You mentioned the South Castro book, and the book we'll discuss today, the Chicano generation. So, and then, you know, I kind of leapfrogged and studied my own millennial students in the <laughs> book that you also mentioned called The Latino Generation, Voices of New America. So, using a generational approach that I began to develop uh, over the years, I pretty much have spanned the 20th century and now have leaped into the uh, new millennium. Right. You mentioned the generational approach, and that's one of the the primary themes that that this book and I think your writings fall under. Uh, there's a there's so there's a generational approach or model that you've uh, identified, and that's that's been you know again a, a a key theme throughout your scholarship. And there's also the focus on leadership. Uh, will you? Um, Explain for our audience uh, the generational model that you've identified and applied to your scholarship, and then uh, you know the role of, of leadership within you know that model. Okay. Well, I I began to conceptualize uh, generations as a way of understanding periodization in Chicano history. In other words, what were the important historical periods that we can uh, focus on for their own particular characteristics. And after I had done my book on immigrants in El Paso and began to kind of, as I mentioned, conceptualize that as the immigrant generation in Chicano history because, as I have to explain to people, because obviously we have continuous immigration for the most part through the 20th century and still do, but the difference is that that immigrant generation in the early 20th century thoroughly uh, uh, dominated with exceptions like northern New Mexico, mm-hmm. the uh, Mexican uh, presence in the United States. Immigrants came, they overwhelmed the 19th century, Californios and Tejanos and other Mexican-Americans who were already here in the 19th century, and they became the dominant population. And no other later period in American history, in Chicano history, do immigrants play such a dominant role. L.A. goes from a 19th century Mexican to Mexican immigrant uh, community. Uh, beyond 
that period of uh, the early 20th century, of course, immigrants remain a very large, uh, very large numbers, but they now have to coexist with U.S.-born Mexican-Americans. Mm. By 1940, the majority of Mexicans in the United States are now U.S.-born, and that continues up to our own day. There's still sizable numbers of immigrants, but right. not the minority population. So, uh, in conceptualizing that uh, period as a period of immigrant generation, well, then I began to, you know, examine, well, what other uh, generations, and, and, and when, by, when I use the term generation, it's not just biological, but also as, a, as political and historical generations, right. although they do tend to coincide with biological generations, but there are transitional figures that don't necessarily fit comfortably into their political generation. You mentioned right. Sal Castro. Sal Castro, biologically, really is part of the Mexican-American generation, but politically and historically, he's part of the Chicano generation. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I needed a way of periodizing, of understanding different periods in Chicano history where you see particular differences and and uh, and evolutions of, of, of identity. So a generational approach uh, gave me that perspective of the early 20th century, you have predominantly immigrant population. In the uh, 30s and 50s, you have now the rise of a U.S.-born Mexican-American generation, the so-called Mexican-American generation. Of course, then you have a whole new wave of political activists in the 60s and 70s. How do we understand them? Well, you know, we understand them as part of a new generation, the Chicano generation. I think, too, David, the other reason I chose a generational approach is that by doing so, it gives me a sense of social change. It gives me a change, mm-hmm. sense of political change, how change takes place and how you see that change within between different generations. So that's something right. that focused on the issue of leadership, of course, has come out of that because in studying generations and especially studying political generations, uh, like they did in my Mexican-American book, which is not a study of the biological Mexican-American generation, but the study of new leadership. Right. The same thing with my Chicano generation book. You know, it's a study of, of, of leaders who emerge out of that generation. And uh, so I focused on the role of leadership within these generational cohorts. And uh, I find that important because all political, social movements, uh, you know, uh, need leadership. Uh, leadership emerges, and it's not from an elitist point of view, but it's mm-hmm. the fact of uh, of these of movements, of social political movements, that some people rise to the challenge and emerge as, uh, as key leaders, and so those leaders are also a window to look at social change and generational change, and so I emphasize the important role of leadership in Chicano history, and by doing so, you know what, it's also important because uh, for our students, for our communities, it's important that we know that we've had leaders, that we've had important leaders, and right. not just those leaders that emerge in the movement that people are more aware of, like Jesus Chavez, Lord but going back in time, we've had a number of major political and community leaders that people need to know, our kids need to know, our students need to know them. Who are they? Because that gives them a sense, as Sal Castro often used to say, a sense of pride that they are part of history. They are part of American history right. because they've had leaders who have been part of making important changes in this country. I think that's a great uh, point. You know, the focus on leadership in telling a narrative, particularly in our in the way education you know just is um you know taught and kind of proceeds in the United States K through 12 education it uh you know 
the connecting leaders to a portion of American history, you know, do not, you know, um, that allows you to, you know, plug them into a, a spot at, at, to some extent, does provide, I think, a, a very necessary uh, type of, first of all, coherency, but like you said, you know, a, uh, a, a source of identification, right, for um, people of, of various ethnic backgrounds to be able to see themselves and their people as actors in, mm-hmm. you know, this historical narrative, if you will. Yeah. And, and, and um, you know, there's a, obviously historians talk about a lot of the problems with, you know, how we, we, we define narratives and, and stuff like that. But it is nonetheless a, a you know, truism that, um, you know, this is kind of the way that, that history is told uh, predominantly, particularly in K through 12 and even, you know, higher education, you know, this focus on a, you know, chronologies on uh, key peoples, key, you know, uh, ideas, uh, events, etc. And, um, and, and I, so I, I agree and I, I appreciate your, your approach because it seems to me, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, as you were, you know, a, a rising scholar, emerging scholar, you didn't have the luxury of, say, the generation that I'm a part of, right, where we have experienced some, oh, I don't know what, uh, uh, 30, 40 years of Chicano scholarship, of, of re- rather recent Chicano scholarship, right? And uh, so uh, where we are able to now, those of, again, I'm speaking of my generation, say of the scholars, are able to benefit from a generational perspective like that, which you have provided as a starting point, right, as a basis, Right. Whereas, you know, so leaders, I'm sorry, uh, studies since books like yours and those of your generation have delved into a lot of other particularities within these generations. So they're not so much, I think, as you've started to imply, they're not so much very rigid categories, um, but they do provide coherency. They do provide direction that allow us to see the development of uh, right ideas that don't emerge from whole cloth, but are dependent upon right previous people, previous ideas, etc. But are um, transitioning. Right from. Yeah. Uh, well, the other thing that I try to emphasize is that uh, people make history. Mm-hmm. Uh, they right. make history as uh, individuals, but they're as part of uh, broader social struggles and social movements. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is important to get a sense of uh, that, that people make history. So if people make history, you can make history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a great point. <laughs> Uh, one other thing I wanted to uh, bring up about the the generational model because it's it, it has been highly influential. Uh, I, I was recently speaking just a, I think about a month or two ago with uh, Carlos Blanton about his recent biography of, uh, of George Sanchez, and uh, you know in his book he mentions how influential your model has been, and uh, essentially it's it's it, it's stood the test of time, so to speak. Um, there hasn't been a a um, perhaps a more convincing or um, useful model that has been, you know, presented and ha- has stuck. Um, so one thing that I mentioned, uh, I've, I've wondered about the model is, um, and we started to talk about this, or, you know, the, the distinctions between generations, how they're, they're not, you know, they are kind of more guideposts, I think, and this is my interpretation, you can correct me, they seem to be more guideposts, not essentially fixed in time, because as you mentioned, someone could have been born like a Sal Castro, right, who, uh, you know, belonged biologically to, to one generation, but kind of identified with another, and I, I thought about that with my own personal experience, and those, say, maybe born in the these, you know, late 70s, early 80s, that are kind of in between the Chicano generation and the, you know, Latino generation, which really isn't really for, you know, some, what, 20 years later, the, the millennials. Um, and um, and so, if, so I guess the, the question was, is, um, 
Could you talk a little about that, how people can be sort of be born, say, in the late 70s and 80s, and yet kind of even during that time identify maybe more as even Mexican-American as opposed to Chicano? Can you – so can you just speak about that? What, what causes do you think uh, maybe one person to be – well, actually born in a later period, but maybe they – they identify with the previous generation or even a generation that's just emerging, so to, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it you know, has to deal with context, you know, where, where one is located and what the, the influences of, let's say, a previous uh, historical political generation was, you know, and so maybe that, uh, that plays itself out uh, in some respects. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it does, for example, in the Latino generation book that I did, and of the... Uh, 13 of, of my former students that I included in terms of their life stories at least through college years, uh, I don't recall that a single one identified as Chicano or Chicana. They, they, mm-hmm. they just, that's a term that for them is not particularly relevant. And so that's why, as they, I mean, they go, if you ask them, well, what's your background? If you're ethnic, I don't know, say Mexican or Salvadoran, but at the same time, in talking with them, you get a sense that they are. Uh, you know, they do identify with from a, in a broader way as uh, as Latinos, mm-hmm. and uh, because they're in a, in a way of you know, new technology and global migrations and greater diversity of um, distribution of uh, people of Latin American background throughout the country. You know, they're in a in the rise of Spanish language media, which media which you know. Uh, addresses a broader pan-Latino audience, they have a larger sense of themselves as being Latino and mm-hmm. not Chicano. And so, you know, each generation, you know, has to create its own sense of uh, identity. Um, having said that, there are some within what I would call a Latino generation, because I know it because they're like, oh, too, who do identify as Chicano. Mm-hmm. And maybe right. that has to do with their own particular background, maybe it has to do with their particular political uh, orientation. So. Right. Yeah, you can have these kind of crossovers consistently in terms of identity between generations. Having said that, as a historian, I have to, of course, take that into consideration, but also ask myself, you know, but overarching, over, overall, right. is the right. way that we still kind of put a handle on uh, new generations, what we would consider to be new generational periods, to give them a kind of uh, uh, greater conceptualization. Of course, anytime you generalize or, or reach for generalization, of course, you're going to do in, injury to you know, specific aspects of that experience, but right. you have to do it in order to just be able to understand historical change. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I wanted to mention, of course, you have figures who, uh, I mentioned Sal Castro, who, you know, uh, born in one biological generation, but really from a political perspective, part of the Chicano generation. But then you have Bert Corona, whom I'll story also right, right. Uh And Bert, of course, uh, really is positioned within the Mexican-American generation, not only by Elijah, but politically, mm-hmm. that's the generation. But then he he transitions to the Chicano generation. Right, right. And all the way till he, he died in 2001, he was really part of that generation. And politics was uh, trans- transferred into that generation. And so you have those kinds of interesting uh, crossovers. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yes, definitely. I appreciate your comments on that. And um, 
I wanted to speak now about uh, the testimonial itself as a, a narrative form, because uh, a number of your most recent publications have really um, you know, focused on this form as a way to tell Chicano history. And uh, so can you, will you describe the, the testimonial for us? Uh, you know, what are your, its, uh, its kind of components or what's its form, its purpose, and, and how does it differ from biography and, say, standard historical narrative? Yeah, well, uh, a testimonial uh, comes out of the Latin American tradition that was developed in the 1960s, um, in which uh, either scholars or journalists uh, began to start interviewing uh, a new leadership in Latin America, uh, people that were struggling for social change and even engaged in revolutionary action. Uh, and to begin to tell their stories, mm-hmm. tell their stories in a way that not only would be of interest to an audience, but also that that audience would reflect on those stories and uh, possibly then act on the influence of those stories. And uh, so that's the kind of testimonials that I've done. And we've mentioned Sal Castro, Blake Corona, two examples, and of course the Chicano Generation book that we'll also discuss today. But, um, it is oral history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it's an oral history that uh, it, it is not a, a biography, mm-hmm. but it's done via oral history. Right, right. The subject, to use that term, the subject doesn't really write his or her own story. Mm-hmm. I, as a historian, interview them and write their story, uh, and their story is mediated by my dialogue wisdom. Mm-hmm. And since I author the narrative, or at least co-author the narrative by the very structure of the questions that I'm interested in, left to themselves, it's possible that they would have written slightly different autobiographies. But uh, but the fact is that by choosing activists, uh, most of these people uh, don't have the time, uh, don't have right, right. To, to do their own story. Uh, so it comes out of that Latin American tradition of a of a of a genre of writing intended to bring about social change. In the case of Latin America, perhaps even revolutionary change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, that's within that influence that I think I've approached these uh, testimonials, which again are all oral history, but they're not just as told to types of oral history because. I, as a historian, not only are doing the interviews, but you know, doing the questioning, following up on the questioning, but I'm writing the whole thing. And, and writing, I'm being creative also in order to put together, I try to keep as true to their language as possible, but I'm moving things around, I'm rearranging uh, their narratives, because no one tells a narrative in a straight line. <laughs> right, right. So I have to rearrange it, reorder it. Um, and I also have to... Uh, write in a way that makes it appealing. So, among other things, I create dialogue, not that I just out of thin air, the dialogue is created out of of my discussions and and the responses of the people that I'm interviewing. From there, I structure uh, a dialogue to make the narrative uh, more interesting. So, uh, some people think that oral history or doing these testimonials is basically what you're doing is just slapping the transcript. <laughs> right. Yeah. Tells they don't know, they know nothing about doing oral history. Mm-hmm. Actually, not doing 
full-length testimonials as I've done. Uh, you just simply don't do that. If you did that, it would just be a, a mess. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, anyone that's read... But I think uh, also, David, I, I, again, going back to the point of leadership and, and people making history, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in uh, producing those kinds of narratives, these kind of testimonials where, yeah, it's individuals, but it's individuals within a broader social context are struggling uh, for the, uh, you know, for the empowerment of the Mexican-American or Chicano communities and so forth. And, and I think uh, to uh, influence people to think about it and uh, maybe they'll finish that narrative by saying, well, maybe I need to pick up the struggle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, yeah, you, you mentioned that. I th- and and um, both this book and, and in the Sal Castro book is uh, the that there is an underlying purpose to the testimonial that is, that is in fact, to uh, engage its reader and motivate them, right, to motivate them mm-hmm. to act. So there's a kind of a pedagogical, if you will, um, uh, uh, you know, purpose that underlies it as well. You know, so the documenting of history, as you said, kind of in that oral history tradition. And I was going to mention that you know anyone that's read oral, you know, oral history transcript as it's been transcribed yeah. from a recording uh, knows how messy those things are, right? And so, indeed, yeah. there is a there is a lot of skill and um, you know insight that goes into crafting a yeah. coherent yeah. narrative. Uh, you know, either weaving that into a standard narrative history or, you know, monograph type work or something like this, which is much more of that mix, as you're saying, between autobiography and, and uh, oral history is, is, and then even, you know, kind of like a social history that's involved too, because you weave all these things together. So, Yeah, autobiographies by their very nature tend to be much more individualistic, individualistically oriented. Uh-huh. A testimonial, as I mentioned, it has a broader social context. And it is, uh, I, I mentioned it, but it, it is, it, it is a, a Frarian approach to narrative or producing narrative, that is to say, based on these uh, views of Paulo Freire, the great Brazilian educator, mm-hmm. where there's, it develops the concept of observe, reflect, and act. Mm-hmm. And I hope that my testimonials uh, does that to the reader. That they observe uh, the, the story, that they reflect on it, and then, as I said, maybe they'll say, "Maybe I've got to pick up the, the struggle and therefore go uh, act on uh, having read the narrative." Right, and when you call me, the other thing I'm interested in is you know your last few books, if you will, have really kind of focused on this this uh, this narrative form, testimonial in, in particular. Why is that? What's what's led you to you know, essentially, you know, you published your first two really kind of standard um, historical works, uh, you know, a monograph and then a a mixture of kind of the, you know, sort of monograph and a survey, which was Mexican-Americans of, of the leadership of that generation, if you will. Um, and then you, you started transition into this direction. What what led you uh, to this, this form and this determined, because it seems you're very determined to continue to pursue this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as you know, I've done both archival uh, driven uh, books. Uh, I also have a book called Catholicos Resistance, right. which is archivally driven. I'm writing now a biography of Father Luis Olivares, uh, uh, who was involved in the Sanctuary Movement in LA, and that's a, a biography, not a testimonial. Mm. Uh, and so that's archivally driven. So I've done both, and um, but I've done a lot of oral history. I've done a lot of oral history in my archivally driven books as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
again, I, I um, you know, sometimes they began actually as biographies and then became testimonials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I felt that it might be more powerful to tell a story in the in the subject's own words, and so uh, mm. I, I concluded that maybe that was the kind of genre that I wanted to go into, telling people's stories, but in their own words. I thought that would make it more powerful mm. than a biography where it's mediated by me, the historian. Right, uh, and so. Some of it was practicality, a period of time uh, where, uh, because of family uh, situations, I knew I could not do as much archival work, and so doing oral history made, was in some ways more feasible. Not that it's less work, but, right. but, but it was feasible, and so uh, uh, that, that drove me to do that. But after I did like the, the Bert Corona book, which was the first one, I just felt that doing it... Uh, you know, it was a very could, could be a very empowering type of narrative, and so right. then I as I went on to others, including the Sal Castro. I mean, to me, I had to tell Sal Castro's words in his own voice because his charisma, his mm-hmm. his, uh, his, uh, uh, his his great speaking ability, uh, it, I, it would not have been done justice in a biography. Right, right. In his own words, and people have told me, you know, you've captured the way Sal spoke, and, and I feel good about that because that was my intent. That, again, that, again, it's not just that I'm just pasting the transcript onto the printed page. Right. I do a lot of work and moving things around and creating dialogue and so forth. But, but I kept true to uh, as much as I could to Sal's way of speaking. You know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, is very powerful. So, uh, I, yeah, that 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 book had to be done in Southwood. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, and then, so this book, moving on to the Chicano generation, uh, this one in particular is about three key leaders within the Chicano movement in Los Angeles. So it's rooted in Los Angeles, and we focus on the, the experiences and, and narratives of uh, Raul Ruiz, uh, Gloria Arellanes, right, and Rosalio uh, Munoz. Uh, will you discuss why uh, you chose to focus on Los Angeles? And then we'll use that to transition maybe into these three uh, individuals in particular. Well, you know, I'm not from L.A., but I've become an L.A. historian. Because I know <laughs> a lot about L.A. Mm-hmm. And uh, L.A., of course, was, in, in, by some estimates, the political capital of the Chicano movement. Uh, mm. Uh, every manifestation, every struggle of the movement to a large degree uh, occurred in Los Angeles. Uh, not that it didn't occur in other places, but certainly L.A. was a major uh, focus of the movement, and it, those movements influenced the movement in other locations as well. That's number one. Number two, the practicality. You know, from Santa Barbara to L.A., it's, what, 100 miles or less. Right. My ability to go back and forth interviewing uh, these three uh, was uh, part of that uh, choice of Los Angeles. Uh, so the two together, I think, went and went, went to, you know, came together. But of course, LA was a major uh, part of a of the Chicano uh, movement. Uh, and this is a book that, as I mentioned, the introduction has a long history to it. I actually started this project, you know, over 20 years ago, and I first started interviewing uh, uh, Raul Reese, and um, I thought it, I began to 
the idea of maybe including Judy Baca in it and mm-hmm. stuff. She was not accessible. And uh, and I, I actually was going to do Jesus Trevino and, I, and the filmmaker, and I did a, lots of interviews with Jesus, but then I guess Jesus uh, maybe thought, well, you know, maybe it'll be too long before uh, Mario Garcia gets his book out. So he went out on his own and wrote his own autobiography. Mm. <laughs> that was published by the book of Press. I said, well, that's great, Jesus. I'm glad you got your story out. I mean, I, but uh, obviously I couldn't. I couldn't include his story in my project. Uh, so it, it took a number of years, and of course I was doing other projects that were a little bit ahead of this particular project, but mm-hmm. you know, I always kept doing, kept, kept doing the interviews and finally focused on, uh, besides Raul Ruiz, uh, and the reason I chose Raul, of course, because Raul was the, I call him the Renaissance man of the but she got a move on. He was he he was in almost he was in so many different activities. He was involved in the you know, student movement. He was involved in the walkouts. He was involved in the Rafaela Party and Catholicos con la Raza, in the anti-war movement. And of course, he edited and published uh, La Raza magazine, which was the most influential Chicano movement publication in Los Angeles and and elsewhere. Also, Roe was a natural that to do Rosario Munoz was also natural because, of course, he was the key leader of the uh, major Chicano anti-Vietnam War movement that culminated in August 29, 1971, and 20 to 30,000 mostly Chicano protests against the war in East L.A. Right. The largest protest organized during the movement and was the largest anti-war protest by any minority group. And so Rosario was a natural, too. And eventually I, I, I focused on Gloria Arianes in a way, she was a natural too. She, Gloria, who's, who's less well known in the movement, but hopefully will be better known as the result of the book, uh, has a very powerful story to tell. She was the only so-called minister of the Brown Berets in Los Angeles, and of course, the Brown Berets originated in LA, and that was considered the national chapter. Many, many other Brown Beret chapters spread throughout the Southwest and beyond the Southwest. But the L.A. was the national chapter with its Prime Minister David Sanchez and the Minister of Defense and the Minister of that, Minister of that. But Gloria was part of the initial cohort of women who joined the Brown Berets in the late 60s, and she rose to become the only female minister of the Brown Berets, mm-hmm. Minister of Education. And so she has a very powerful story to tell within a very important Chicano movement organization that was considered uh, perhaps a the most radical or one of the most militant of the Chicano movement groups. And what you get out of Gloria's story is that, yes, of course, it was not the most radical, and um, you had a lot of guys in it, but in many ways it was the women who held the Brown Berets together. It was the women who did the hard work uh, of the Brown Berets. I mean, they published, they were basic, Gloria was basically the editor, although she followed David Sanchez was given the credit as editor, but they published their, I mean, their, their newspaper. Uh, she was the one, she and the women are the one that, that put it together. And But then also, she tells her story of working and putting together the uh, Brown Beret uh, Free Clinic in East L.A., El Barrio Free Clinic. And uh, she and the women were the uh, bedrock of that free clinic, and they, they operated for a year, a year and a half, and they, they did tremendous service to the uh, community in East L.A. by providing medical services. 
through the volunteer efforts of doctors and nurses, but the, it was the women in Gloria who put it all together and, and put these these services. Uh, and to me, in looking at the history of the Brown Berets in L.A., that free clinic was probably the greatest contribution that the Brown Berets did in its history with respect to the Chicano movement uh, because it reached people in a way that none of the other efforts of the Brown Berets could conceivably reach. I mean, they treated hundreds if not thousands of people in that clinic. Yet Gloria held it together, but... You know, she eventually, in the first quarter, of women left because of the sexism by the guys in the in the berets, and, and the book goes into some of those encounters and some of those conflicts, including the threat of rape. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a very, very powerful story, and uh, the story that uh, needs to be told, and uh, she mentions that uh, very few of the other women in the initial cohort of the Brown Berets, you know, you know they're uh, very reluctant to tell their story. So she said, I'm, I'm telling my story, but I'm telling my story for them as well. Mm-hmm. I, hope I will encourage them to begin to tell their stories. And so she's a, she's a tremendous person and um, very powerful and uh, someone who suffered a lot as a result of the movement. And, uh, well, they all did. They, they all, uh, their, their lives were changed dramatically by the movement. And... Uh, but uh, what I mentioned in, in, in my introduction is that uh, they, they all remain committed people in one way or another. They, they never betrayed their ideals that they developed during the movement, the struggle for social justice and community empowerment and ethnic uh, integrity and so forth. I think they, they always stayed committed. They never, they never will look back and said, oh, well, those were just my fanciful youth days and now you know, I'm much more established. And so no, they, they've always, always been committed to the struggle. Right. And um, what intrigues me is, uh, again, we're the, 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 the narrative, one of the narrative themes that flows throughout the book is, is this focus on leadership and what I what I started thinking about as I'm, as I'm reading through you know these three different narratives uh, of these three people in their exceptional lives uh, were that you know they come from such diverse backgrounds and, and the Chicano movement itself was so many things right to so many different people you've you've, you've begun to mention a number of the different components of the of the movement you know there is the uh, student you know component to the organization both at the, the high school level the, the blowouts the walkouts. Uh, you know, then you had the the university component, uh, fighting for you know representation and uh, the development of Chicano uh, studies curriculum and programs and, and spaces on campus. You had the anti-war movement, the Brown Berets, uh, and and many other things. And so, considering that, and considering the very diverse in, in backgrounds of these three, what is it that we that we learn about leadership by studying their lives? Because I think that. Uh, Sometimes I think when we, we hear the term leadership, we think elite, right? We think that these, um, you know, someone was either, you know, uh, a lot of times it's associated with people that were born into either some type of privilege, privilege, or were predisposed somehow, um, predestined maybe to use a very lofty term in some way to a leadership role. But uh, certainly by studying their lives, at least initially, there's nothing perhaps from their initial 
uh, very like say childhood or birth. Uh, you know, they, they weren't born to people that were that necessarily were were um, you would you would necessarily identify them as they're destined or born to be a leader. But yet you identify commonalities in their lives, and so we discussed that. What is it that we learn about how leadership or how people develop into leaders or how they they you know become activists? What what are the components that you found that that led them to these trajectories, these tracks? Well, that's a very interesting question, and um, you know, that's what I suggest, of course, that uh, there's a process of becoming a leader. A leader, you're not born a leader. Mm-hmm. I'm your gene, but I think it has to do with socialization, and that socialization, as I suggest in the book, begins even before to become political activists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I look at their family lives, and that's why I asked them to first begin to discuss their childhood memories, their family memories, and so forth. And uh, what, you, what you draw from that is that each one of them, you know, had certain influences uh, in their early uh, upbringing that uh, uh, began to influence them to, you know, assert themselves, to be proud of themselves, to uh, not accept being put down for being Mexican, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and even though all three are very, have very distinct family backgrounds, I think there is something that in part uh, uh, connects them. Or and if it and, and, and it, and it, it has, doesn't have to be just family socialization; it could be socialization in the school. That comes mm-hmm. through in the story, Ariana's story. Uh, although her father was always telling her, you know, you're a Chicano, you're a Chicano. <laughs> right, right, I noticed that. Uh, and so that's something that was early ingrained in her, and she didn't fully understand that and so forth. But I think uh, in school, then, you know, she was, uh, there was a lot of tension between the whites and the uh, Mexican-Americans in her high school in El Monte, El Monte High School. And, uh, and then there was one teacher who began to try to bridge the, the gap, and he began to help her. The Chicanos organized amongst themselves, and uh, he chose Gloria to be one of two representatives to the first uh, uh, Chicano Youth Leadership Conferences that Sal Castro was involved in, going back to the early 60s. And so that helped to create her, I think, her sense of leadership. But I think the other two, the other two, even more directly within the, the family, you know, I think uh, in Rose's uh, family, uh, a sense of, uh, you know, standing up for. Uh, his rights and so forth uh, through at least through his mother, uh, his mother sending him to Catholic school to kind of you know make sure that he uh, got <clears throat> as good an education as possible. And I think Raul also was just you know I don't want to do a genetic analysis, but I mean he was always a kind of a, a babbler. You know he was he always uh, was kind of a rebel type. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rosario, of course, had. A strong, strong parental influence, strong religious influence, uh, uh, and his father. Both his parents were well educated; they were college educated. His father went on to get a PhD in education from USC, so he had that in his background, you know. So his his family socialization was one of, uh, you know, uh, community leadership, and so forth. And of course, that began to emerge very early on when he. Runs for the in UCLA and becomes elected as student body uh, president. Right. To mm-hmm. be involved in those emotions. So I think, I guess what I'm suggesting is that leadership is a result of, of 
socialization already in your early childhood and your teenage years and early adult years, and, and then in a particular context uh, that emerges in terms of asserting uh, yourself to be part of a struggle and to be part of a leadership of that struggle. Yes, I know that. I mean, there's this sense that sometimes leadership, you know, equals elitism, often said by people who themselves want to be leaders, but, <laughs> but uh, are misunderstanding. The fact of the matter is, as I said earlier, all movements, social, political movements, are, you know, they have leadership. And, of course, you want some of that leadership. And some of that leadership is grassroots leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was on the farm worker struggle. When first Corona began to organize the undocumented, he he you know, tried to to develop uh, leadership out of the undocumented immigrants themselves. And and it's not like uh, Raul, Gloria, and Rosario came from these blue-blooded families. Mm-hmm. These are not Kennedys, Rockefellers. These people that are born to leadership. These are right. Donald's uh, working class, lower middle class, uh, are also facing a lot of uh, racial and ethnic discrimination and so forth and so on. So um, they're not, uh, you know, part of some kind of uh, separate elitist uh, families and so forth. No, they're, they're people who, again, as I mentioned, you know, have developed conviction, developed a uh, uh, sense of uh, values of uh, trying to achieve social justice, and they also have a very important characteristic that they, they have discipline and they have persistence. They understood what Bert Corona often told the activists on a movement. Uh, he said, if you're going to be involved in struggle, you have to realize that struggle is going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen overnight, and so forth and so on. Some understood that, like these three that I write about, others less so, and, you know, change didn't happen. <laughs> in a short period of time, an academic year or whatever, mm-hmm. and they said, well, I guess things don't change and they drop down. But uh, so I admire Raul's and Gloria's and Rosalio's their, their sense of persistence, or sense of dedication for the long haul. Right, and on that persistence and, and dedication, that, that that longer perspective that they had, you uh, label this that they, they had a uh, collectively a type of militant pragmatism, right? There's a, a revolutionary aspect to Chicano ideology, and... Um, and however, that, I think that's mostly what, what people focus on. I think that has to do a lot with why or why not people identify even today, perhaps even youth millennials and, and whatnot as Chicano because it's very politically charged and it's associated with, right, third world revolutionary struggles, uh, you know, the communism, Marxism, etc. cetera. Uh, yet again, you label these as, these three as pragmatists, militant pragmatists. Will you, will you explain that a bit? Well, you know, there was a lot of <clears throat> ideological influences on the movement, the concept of Aslan, the lost homeland of uh, the Chicanos in the Southwest, uh, and uh, and uh, a lot. Some of that was more romanticized, perhaps, and so forth. And uh, uh, it's not that they weren't influenced by Chicano nationalism, what we'll just call cultural nationalism, but. But but they also understood these three that uh, struggles had to be uh, practical, had to be pragmatic, they had to be at the grassroots. Uh, you know, ideology could only take you so far. You have the problems in the schools, like in the blowouts. You had 
a lack of political representation, hence a lot of us in the party. You had young people, young young boys, young men who were being inordinately drafted into the military to go fight an unnecessary war in Vietnam. How to stop it? Hence, for Salio Munoz and the Chicano anti-war movement and so forth. And uh, uh, how to help people in the community that needed things like uh, health care, hence uh, Gloria and the Brownberry uh, uh, Free Clinic. And so in that sense, they, they are pragmatic, but they're, they're driven by a militant ethos of bringing about an empowerment to the community, uh, challenging the status quo, challenging the way things are. So in that sense, they're militant. Uh, and but they express that militancy in, a, in very pragmatic ways, and that's that's what I came to it, be impressed by and admire the work of these three. That they were not just out spouting ideology and uh, revolutionary slogans and so forth and so on. Um, they they saw what needed to be done to try to bring about concrete change, mm-hmm. and I think that's where their pragmatism uh, um, is involved, and so um, I think that uh, I think that's probably true for a lot of other movement activists, you know, and I think the more we examine the Chicano movement and other communities and so forth, many of these struggles have the larger kind of uh, ideological uh, coloration, but in the end, you have to struggle against, you know, basic issues and basic needs, and so I think mm-hmm. we learn more and more about the movement, especially in different locations, I think we see that uh, those kind of struggles take place. Like the two conferences that I've had, as you know, on the Chicano movement, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the papers that presented show those kind of very practical struggles in different communities. Uh, in San Antonio, the labor movement, she's the Chicano in the labor movement, they were influenced by the movement, and then they, that just helped propel them even more in terms of trying to get contracts and higher wages and so forth. So that's you see that kind of pragmatism being exhibited there um, uh, also. Right, and you know that comment just leads me directly to um, uh, my next question. And I know we need to we, we need to wrap up, but I would definitely want you to you know comment on where you see uh, movement on. I mean, sorry, um, the the development and progress of um, or direction. I think is a better word. The direction of the scholarship on the Chicano movement headed. As you mentioned, you you organized two uh, so far. It's now an annual conference. It's on the movement. Uh, and then, of course, you've published uh, now a number of works that address with key figures within the movement. And so you're, you're very close to you know, being able to analyze you know, um, what you've seen, say, you know, over the last you know, 10 years or decade or so, is, is really scholarship on the movement has begun to flower and, and really develop. So where else do you see it going that is the scholarship on the movement? Well, what I'm seeing, uh, I see the scholarship developing, and I, I see it presented as the two uh, conferences that I've organized here at UC Santa Barbara, the third, which is coming up in February 2027, which is now called the Sal Castro Memorial Conference on the Emerging Historiography of the Chilean Movement. I see uh, diversity. I think that's first and foremost how people are interpreting the movement in very diverse ways, mm-hmm. in terms of diverse um, 
actors, if you will, uh, 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 bringing in uh, a, a greater uh, diverse group of activists that uh, we were, we might have been less uh, uh, aware of. Like I mentioned, uh, the labor movement in L.A. that identified with the movement. Uh, we had a trouble paper at the, the first conference. So, uh, also, the labor movement up in um in Sacramento, but also identifying with the movement and so forth, the greater role, exploring the role of women in the movement and so forth. Uh, and so the diversity in terms of uh, who the political actors were, and diversity in terms of uh, locations, of the, how the movement manifested itself in a variety of locations, you know, not just necessarily the big cities like L.A. or San mm-hmm. Antonio, but... In, in smaller communities, Oxnard, and I've mentioned, you know, Sacramento, uh, people are doing role the movement in South Texas, mm-hmm. and um, so that kind of diversity. And um, uh, but I think driven by an appreciation of the historical importance of the Chicano movement, it is in effect a revisionist perspective. And by that I mean is that the, the movement into the 80s and 90s, even to the first decade of the century, was getting a bad rap, so I can use that term, by other Chicano study scholars. We often, and then still do, ask these litmus tests of the movement, and if they failed at this test, the suggestion is the movement was not important. Mm-hmm. That's why it's driven by issues of gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So if the question is how how was the movement with respect to the role of women, gender, and if it's uh, either no or it wasn't as good as it should be, well, and then obviously the movement wasn't all that important. How did the movement deal with gays, uh, lesbians, etc.? Well, the movement didn't really deal hard with that. Well, then I guess I guess the movement wasn't altogether that great. It's the wrong questions. Historians don't ask you not don't ask these kind of litmus tests of history. It's a misreading of history. Present to a kind of voicing onto history your own contemporary perspectives and views. Obviously, the past and present are intertwined. You can sometimes force history in a very, uh, you know, in a way that really doesn't uh, fully understand what was going on in that past past period. Uh, So, and that's what I mean by revision, that this this kind of, kind of almost creating the Chicano movement from a gender and sexuality perspective that we've seen in the last 20, 30 years, this new group of scholars, many of them young scholars now, graduate students, are coming back and saying, no, no, we're not going to ask that that litmus test. Yes, we're going to explore issues of gender and sexuality. Right, right. But at the same time, understand how important the Chicano movement was. Right, right. All of us in one form or another uh, are are, um, in a sort of debt to the movement. I mean, when you think about it, the movement opened up so many opportunities that people of Mexico certainly had never had. I've never had. Where, where did this come from? Like, we talk about contemporary Latino political power. What's the roots of that? Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. Make the argument that you found a movement helped to create that because it, for the first time, I mentioned in my introduction, it made Chicanos and by extension other Latinos into national political actors. Right. Into the, you know, into the 70s. So I think what, what, what I'm, I'm very uh, excited about is that a lot of these uh, new uh, studies are generated by 
people, especially younger scholars who, uh, you know, are embracing the movement. It's a very important historical movement. That doesn't mean that they're not critical. Exactly. Right. Social studies, and, but they're engaged studies. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not asking these, uh, these false litmus tests. So I think diversity and with this you know, new appreciation of the movement, uh, you know, I, I'm very excited about it. Uh, and... Um, uh, you know, in our February conference coming up, February 26th, 27th, it'll be at least 25 presentations, and they're all, you know, different uh, subjects and themes. Um, and so it, it is really, I mean, there's something now that we can call Chicano Movement Study. Right. And mm-hmm. I'd mm-hmm. like that at these South Castle conferences. So whatever work I've done recently on the Chicano Movement is, is, is you know, it's part of that is to add to that and to encourage you to others. Like these three stories that I tell in the Chicano Generation, these are all three possible uh, opportunities for, you know, um, younger enterprising historians to say, well, okay, I'm going to do a full biography of Raul Reese. Mm-hmm. A full biography of Gloria Arianes or a full biography of Rosalia Rio, and they're deserving of that. So what I've done is laid the foundation for those future biographies because they can draw from my oral histories and the testimonials and then build on them by going into more archival uh, research or right. uh, more more oral histories around the people that work with these three and so forth. So hopefully that, that, that will occur. Great. Right. I totally agree. Thank you for that comment. And, uh, you know, I know you're pressed for time. I did want to give you the opportunity to mention anything else that is, as we, we wrap up, that you're currently working on that's a you know, project you have that's developing that you'd like our audience to, to hear about. Uh-huh. Well, I, I, I mentioned that my current, <clears throat> excuse me, my current project that I've been working on actually for a number of years is a biography, not, not an oral history or a testimonial, but a biography of Father Luis Olivares who uh, in, in the 1980s became best known because he was the, the heart and soul of the sanctuary movement in, uh, in Los Angeles out of his parish, La Placita Church, in downtown Los Angeles. And he, in 1985, declared his uh, church a sanctuary for the uh, Central American refugees that were coming as a result of the wars in El Salvador and Guatemala. And then two years later did what no other sanctuary movement had done. He declared sanctuary of La Placita for undocumented Mexican immigrants. Uh-huh. And right. in between, you know, he worked in terms of trying to end the U.S. involvement in, in Central America by supporting right-wing governments and death clubs and so forth. And uh, But I tell you the whole story from childhood in San Antonio to his years in the seminary, uh, learning to, to become a Claritian priest, to becoming a top official of his order, but then in 1975, by his own admission, undergoing a conversion when he uh, uh, meets Cesar Chavez and he begins to work with the farm workers. And then in the later 70s, out of his parish, he goes to become a parish priest in East L.A. at La uh, Soledad. Uh, and there he becomes a key leader of an organization referred to as UNO, United Neighborhoods Organization. And um, he learns how his skills as an organizer and strategies and then in 1981, when he transfers to La Placita Church, it's at the time that the refugees are coming, and the 80s, of course, a big wave of undocumented immigrants, and he applies what he's learned earlier in his new converted attitude to progressivism and liberation theology to 
embrace and to support, uh, you know, the poor and the oppressed, in this case, the, the refugees and the undocumented. And uh, he continues that till um, the end of his life. He died in uh, 1993. And uh, so I, I obviously never had a chance to interview him because I was, did not become interested in his life until later. I knew of him, but, uh, but uh, I, I, not at, at the time that he died, I wasn't uh, you know, working on his uh, biography. But it's, an, it's a remarkable life. And it, it, it's not only in terms of, again, expression of a new kind of leadership, in this case, religious, religious spiritual leadership, that we also need to examine. But it's, what he was involved in is also uh, looking at faith-based movements. Mm-hmm. And out of the La Placita Church and earlier, with Uno, you have these faith-based movements that were very important, that, that uh, in the case of Uno, accomplished very practical uh, reforms that uh, in the East L.A. community, and then, of course, in, with the, in the 80s, Olivares' work with the refugees and the undocumented deal with people who were being victimized and who uh, had no no rights, really, in this country, and they began to to talk about immigrant rights, and uh, and but it was through a faith-based movement that that's, uh, that's developed. So there's a lot of different facets to exploring Olivares' life, but he was a very charismatic and uh, and just a totally committed uh, leader, but a leader working within within the Catholic Church in, in his case. And so that's another question of leadership that we need to also explore. Uh, uh, if, you're, if one is interested in the role of leadership in Chicago history. Certainly, definitely. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, Mario, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, discuss the Chicano generation uh, on New Books and Latino Studies. And uh, just best of luck in the, the, the rest of your studies, and, and hopefully we'll look forward to ta- speaking with you again. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it, and good luck on your work. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Mario T. Garcia, author of The Chicano Generation, Testimonials of the Movement, published by the University of California Press in 2015. If you'd like to reach us at New Books in Latino Studies, you may email us at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Garcia's work, we encourage you to purchase The Chicano Generation on Amazon by following the link to it on our New Books and Latino Studies page. Thanks again. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.